0: Uh, Lord, as we come here this morning to hear from your word, uh, Lord, we ask that we would truly behold you, Lord, that you are worthy of praise and all adoration. Lord, for those of us who have already received uh, Christ as our Savior, Lord, we ask that there would be renewed uh, passion and desire uh, to hear from you, to respond to you in all things, to submit to you humbly, humbly. Lord, for those who may be here this morning or joining with us online who have never received Christ as their Savior, we pray through the spoken word of God and through the Spirit's work, uh, Lord, salvation uh, would come into this place. Lord, we thank you for what you're going to do in advance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4, Jonah chapter 4, we're going to look at this last chapter, verses 1 through 11. If you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's word, I would encourage you, to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. I would encourage you to take that Bible and open up to page 863, 863. Chapter 4 is somewhat of a challenge, but a beautiful challenge, and I pray that it will uh, impact our lives not only today, but each and every day that God gives us life on this earth. Uh, what we find uh, from the very first verse of Jonah chapter 1 to the very last verse of Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, we find uh, a follower of God who is in the midst of a tremendous battle. Jonah is in constant battle. He's struggling with the will of God. He's struggling with the call of God. He's struggling with the love of God. He struggles with uh, how he should view the people of this world. Jonah is in a battle with control and pride and great rebellion. Uh, The book of Jonah really and truly puts us face to face with ourselves, right? When we see Jonah, the more we see Jonah, we see a reflection of our own hearts. Jonah truly is a reflection of us When we get to Jonah chapter 4, we get to the very pinnacle of Jonah's great battle in his heart. And we have to understand a little bit of the context of how we got to where we are going to be in uh, Jonah chapter 4. Keep in mind, in Jonah chapter 1, God gave Jonah this amazing call to go, to arise and speak to the people of Nineveh. But yet, in the midst of that, uh, Jonah chooses to rebel. He chooses to uh, flee, try. From the presence of God, that is mentioned multiple times in Jonah chapter 1. But God, in his amazing grace, does divine intervention in Jonah's life. And praise God for that, right? How many of you can say that today? That God does divine intervention in the lives of rebellious runners. And then in Jonah chapter 2, through uh, the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, uh, God uh, brings Jonah to a place of repentance and worship. But the story's not over. In Jonah chapter 3, we see that God is going to uh, vomit uh, Jonah out of the belly of that fish, and he's going to essentially recommission Jonah, that undeserved second chance, right, to the same calling that was on his life. Uh, God gives it to him again. Uh, God gives him the very words to speak to the people of Nineveh, that five-word sermon, if you will, in the Hebrew. Powerful words, and there you see uh, the people of uh, Nineveh, they repent. They they turn to God. They mourn over their sin. They turn from their sin, and they receive the very mercy of God. We see that in uh, Jonah chapter three verse ten, where God relents of the judgment that He was going to put on the people of Nineveh because of their sin. The scripture says, "When God saw what they did, speaking of the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it." So we have a God who is able to judge sin rightly. But we also have a God who uh, has the power to forgive, right? And that's exactly what we see. Now, it's at this moment in Jonah's life that it's a drop-the-mic moment, right? I mean, you have this amazing, uh, great awakening in the people of Nineveh. If not the greatest, one of the greatest moments in all of redemptive history where droves of people are coming to faith in the Lord, right? And it's at this moment that you're just thinking, all right, the story has to be done Well, here's what we know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has to dig a little bit deeper, right? And that's what we see in chapter 4. In chapter 4, we hear these words, and this is where we're going to spend our time this morning. The scripture says this, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is uh, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city, and sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, till he should should see what would become of the city. Verse 6. to be angry for the plant. And he said, "Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die." And the Lord said, "You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I, pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle." Now, before we dive into our passage, I do think it would be very very uh helpful for us to understand that Jonah's going to express some tremendous emotion here, right? He's, he's going to say, it's better for me to die than to live. And I, and I just want to encourage you, if that's where you're at, man, know that you're not alone. Know that there are people who love you, a God that loves you tremendously, that you are uniquely created by the hand of God. So much so that there will never, ever be Someone as unique as you on this earth. You're one of a kind. And so I just want to encourage you that if you find yourself in a place of that type of turmoil, however it came about, seek help. We're here to help. We would love to meet you where you're at. We want to point you to an amazing God who loves you unconditionally. And so please, if that's where you're at, don't leave here today without stopping by our next step area. Share that with somebody. You can come forward at the end of our service. I'd love to talk with you. Uh, but I do, I think it would be appropriate for us to mention that because that will come up a few times. But we find that Jonah is in, in, his, he's in a very dark place, right? I mean, he's struggling with God's plan and God's will uh, for his life and the life of those who are in Nineveh. And it seems like we've kind of been here before with Jonah, right? It's like the moment Jonah seems to be uh, moving ahead in his growth and walk and dependency in the Lord, it's like he takes two steps back, right? Anybody recognize that in their own life? I mean, we certainly see that in the lives around us, but the reality is it's true of us as well. And here's what we find in Jonah's life. There, there's a cycle that continues in his life, and we see, in many ways, a cycle that is the same with us. And here's what we're going to see. Two observations in uh, Jonah chapter 4, one dealing with Jonah, the other one dealing with the Lord. The first one is this, the many layers of Jonah, right? The many layers of Jonah. One of the things that we recognize as, uh, as most people in general and God's people specifically is we have a lot of layers. Do you agree? Do you agree? Uh, we're, we're not as simple as we think we are. We are complex people. You, you search to the depths of the heart, and it's layer after layer after layer after layer. But praise be to God, that's exactly where the gospel wants to go. The gospel wants to expose each of those layers, and that's exactly what chapter 4 does in the life of Jonah. In Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, listen to what the scripture says. Again, this is right after that great revival in chapter 3, the scripture says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Three words describe Jonah's emotional, relational, and spiritual state in verse 1. The scripture says that he was displeased. That means he was shattered. He, he was broken. The scripture says the word exceedingly. That means there was an unstable aspect to it, right? It was overflowing emotion. The scripture says that he was angry. It refers to the fact that, that, that Jonah really was hot mad. He, he's boiling with anger. He's extremely upset. So Jonah's clearly in a bad place. He's on full meltdown road. And here's what we recognize. It's just not a three-year-old problem, right? We can find ourselves even as adults in that same manner. And the way that the Hebrew is constructed is Jonah's not mad about what happened to the Ninevites. Jonah's actually mad at who? He's mad at God. He's angry at what God has done. In other words, what God did on behalf of the Ninevites was seen as an evil to Jonah. That's what the Hebrew language says, that it was evil to him. uh, Jonah hated what God had done, and as a result, God's prophet was angry. The question is, why is he so angry, right? In other words, why why do we get so angry at what God does in the lives of the people around us? Again, we're exposing the heart here. The first one is uh, Jonah was resentful. He was resentful. Uh, The word resentful means to feel angry because you are forced to accept someone or something that you do not like. Think about that for just a minute. The word resentful means that you are having to accept someone or something that you do not like. In other words, God has a plan. And you don't like that plan, right? Anybody over here struggle with God's plan, especially in how God's plan is impacting the people around you in a great and mighty way? Notice how Jonah's resentment is expressed first part of verse 2, the scripture says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is this not this, what I said when I was yet in my country? That's a great phrase to underline, my country. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. So Jonah prayed his best pl- prayer in the worst place. Remember Jonah 2? Where is he at? The belly of the fish. But now Jonah's praying the worst prayer in the best place. All these people have come to faith in Christ, and here Jonah's prayer is all about himself, right? And finally, we find out why. What is the true reason why Jonah wanted to flee From that original call in chapter 1 to Tarshish. Why is it that Jonah chose not to go uh, the 500 miles to the east, but chose to go the 2,000 miles to the west to flee from the presence of God? The scripture says, why? Because he did not want the Ninevites to receive the blessings of God. You see, Jonah's fear wasn't that uh, the wicked uh, people of Nineveh would kill him. That wasn't his greatest fear. His greatest fear wasn't that he would get there and he would do exactly what God would say and that there would be tremendous failure. He actually feared that it would succeed, right? Why? How do we know this? Second part of verse 2, listen to what the scripture says. For I know, that's another phrase that's important, I, or I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. So those characteristics of God in the second part of verse 2, these aren't the first time that these show up in scripture. In fact, you read the Old Testament, there's going to be ten or over ten other times where these same characteristics of God are grouped together in one particular setting. And, jo- and when Jonah says that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, guess what? Jonah actually believed that. He knew it intellectually, he also knew it experientially. God experienced the very or Jonah experienced the very same characteristics in his own life. Do you understand what Jonah is exposing about himself? Jonah is saying this. Jonah's not angry because God is those things. Jonah is angry because God chose to be those things to the people of Nineveh. Nineveh was Israel's great enemy, right? There are people who are in his mind beyond the reach of God's blessing, beyond the reach of God's grace. Jonah was all about the people of his own country receiving the blessings of God, but not those people, right? And when the scripture says that this is why Jonah made haste to flee to Tarshish, the scripture literally is saying this, Jonah urgently fled to Tarshish in order to prevent or to obstruct God's blessing towards the Ninevites. You see, Jonah could not fathom for one moment that the same God that was merciful and gracious and patient towards him could be gracious and merciful and patient towards them, right? You see how the heart is wicked and dark and complex. This is where Jonah is at. So Jonah has right theology, but a bitter heart, right? a resentful heart towards what God is doing. Now the question is, can that happen to us? Is it possible that we as followers of Christ could have the capacity to know and to experience the very characteristics of God, but yet at the same time have the capacity not to want to reflect those to the people around us? Is it possible that in our resentment that we think that they don't deserve it, right? So the question is, whose are them, right? Every single one of us has it. I mean, you think about the person that just rubs you wrong right now, that person, that group of people, if God were to show tremendous grace, mercy, patience, and forgiveness towards them, how would you respond? I mean, you think about that for just a minute, and we realize, man, our, our heart has some complexity to it, and that's what's being exposed in Jonah's life. So Jonah, because of God's amazing grace in his life, is being There's a death blow to the heart of resentment. God is exposing that. The scripture says in verse 4, and the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? You know, do you find that God asks questions to expose something deeper? I mean, how many times would, in the New Testament specifically, where people ask Jesus a question and how does Jesus answer? He answers with another question, right? Why? Because he's exposing really the depths of what you're truly asking. And so here's Jonah. He's presenting the Lord with a resentful heart, and God responds with a question. Do you do well to be angry? So Jonah here is resentful. Uh, Second thing that we see in Jonah's uh, life is that there's a sense of self-righteousness, right? Jonah's self-righteous. It's funny that Jonah doesn't answer the question in verse 4 with words, but he does so with action, right? This is important. Look at verse 5 for just a moment. The scripture said, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So Jonah is angry, not with words, but with actions. Notice all the actions that he took. The scripture says he went out of the city. He made a booth. He sat down. He waited to see what would become of the city. So again, God is doing amazing things where? In the city. You can't escape it. Three times in that one verse, it mentions the importance of the city. God has a heart for the city, even the city of Nineveh. And yet, because Jonah has a heart problem, that self-righteousness that's deep, deep down, he thinks they deserve what? The judgment of God. Feel the weight of Jonah's actions. He wants no part of their spiritual growth, right? He wants no part in their walk with the Lord. He wants none of it. He wants to remove himself from the situation. In Jonah's mind, they aren't good enough, but in his mind... He's self-righteous. I deserve it, right? So it's not just a uh, my country issue. It's a personal issue for Jonah. Jonah thinks he is, and so he removes himself from the people that he should be ministering to, right? He goes outside of the city. Uh, The scripture says that he made a booth. Now, this is important because on one level, that booth was a a shelter, right? A temporary shelter from from the scorching hot sun in the desert there. Uh, Again, Nineveh is modern-day Iraq, so just kind of put that in perspective. But there's something very, very significant about booth, the the Hebrew word for booth here. It's the same Hebrew word that is used uh, for the Feast of Booths. Again, in Jewish culture, every year, one week out of the year, they would have the Feast of Booths. And that would be a time where the the, the Jewish people, they would build these temporary shelters, booths, uh, and that's where they would live for a week. And it was a time of celebration. The question is why? It was a time where uh, the Jewish people celebrated God's protection, provision, and promised to the people of God, even in the midst of the wilderness time, right? That was 40 years before they crossed into uh, the promised land. And so this was a time of great celebration. But here, Jonah's doing what? He's not celebrating what God is doing. He's not celebrating at the fact that God fulfilled a promise, that God was faithful, that God uh, gave great uh, provision and protection, even to the people of Nineveh. He's on the outside. He's not celebrating. He's instead expressing a critical spirit, a condemning spirit, a self-righteous spirit. Why? Because he doesn't believe they deserve deliverance, right? He believes they deserve judgment. The word sat here means to sit in judgment. That's exactly what that word is meaning. Again, Scripture says that he's on the east side of the city. Anytime, uh, most often when you see the, uh, the word east, uh, talking about east wind or east side of something in, in the Old Testament specifically, it, it is to express judgment. We see that in Isaiah, Job, Psalms, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Exodus, and also in Hosea. And the scripture says that he waited to see what would become of the city. I mean, think about Jonah for just a minute. He's outside the city, on the east side, probably elevated up a little bit so he could see everything. He's got a front row seat at the movie, right? The movie of destruction. That's what he thinks is going to happen. That's what he wants to happen. Despite the clear evidence that God had accepted Nineveh's repentance, guess what? Jonah didn't expect it. He didn't accept it at all. These individuals come to faith in the Lord. Jonah says what? Prove it, right? Prove it to me. And so Jonah's out on the city. He's not being a participant in what God is doing. He's simply being a spectator. Why? Because of that resentful heart, that self-righteous heart. But we also see that he's forgetful. He's forgetful. When we think about the character of God, if we're honest, when we think about the character of God, there's something offensive about it, right? unless you realize you're the one that needs it, right? I mean, the moment that you forget your need for the character of God, there's something offensive about it. It doesn't make sense. And that's where Jonah's at. And God is going to expose that he has forgotten his need for the Lord. In Jonah 4, verse 6, the scripture says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Uh, so Jonah was exceedingly glad, that's a great phrase to underline, because of the plant. So this is the first time that we see that Jonah is actually happy about something, right? Uh, the scripture says that he's exceedingly glad, he's overjoyed, but he's overjoyed about the wrong thing, right? He's happy because a plant is there, but he's not happy that people came to faith, right? See the struggle of the heart? He's forgetting something here. Uh, the scripture says that uh, the The plant, which would, most uh, scholars would say that was some kind of casserole uh, plant where uh, it grows very rapidly. It has these big leaves and it would shade uh, your head in this particular case. Uh, But here's the beauty of what the scripture is teaching us Jonah's greatest need wasn't to have his head shaded, right? His greatest uh, issue was not the fact that he might get sunburned, right? His greatest issue was something far, far, far deeper. The the scripture, when it says to save him from his discomfort, uh, the word save means to deliver. The word discomfort uh, is the same word that's used for evil and destruction, and that's what Jonah needed to be delivered from. He needed to be delivered from his own evil, his own destruction. And so what does God do? God appoints a plant to expose that. Notice what happens next, verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked, that's military language, attacked the plant so that it withered, it died. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And if you've ever been in the Middle East, Uh, It doesn't take much for that scorching east wind to come, and it immediately uh, will either raise the temperature 20 degrees or drop the temperature 20 degrees. And so it's raising the temperature here, and the scripture says, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. He was absolutely worn out. And God is doing all those things to expose, again, something deeper in Jonah's life, the fact that he forgot. Listen to what happens in verse 8, second part of verse 8. And he, Jonah, asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And I love the fact that God doesn't leave him there. He says in verse 10, and the Lord said, "Uh, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there were, are more than 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. You know, God is so good, he gets to the root of the problem, right? Again, Jonah is forgetting his need for the character of God, right? He's forgetting his need that he needs God just as much as the Ninevites need God. Uh, he is forgotten to value the eternal over the temporal, right? What's making him upset? What took him from being exceedingly glad to upset? The fact that his temporary, uh, temporal comfort was missing, right? You and I have those same struggles, right? How many of us that if we don't get the supersized french fry that we paid for We're going to ride ourselves all the way back in, and we're going to get in there, and we're going to give them a piece of our mind, but yet there are people all around us who have no knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we almost don't even care. That's what's happening in Jonah's heart. He forgot that God's people were called to be the bearer of his message to the nations. And Jonah's concerned about a plant. A plant that he did not sprout. He did nothing to earn, deserve, or anything revolving around that plant. And to me, the greater miracle isn't the fish that swallowed Jonah. The greater miracle is is the plant that God appointed to shade his head, to reveal and expose that he had forgotten his desperate need for the same God that the Ninevites needed. The question is, have we forgotten? Have we forgotten our role in God's redemptive plan? Have we forgotten the importance of always keeping the temporal down, 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 down in the eternal, up, up, up? In other words, keep the primary, the primary, secondary, secondary, right? Have we forgotten? Here's the beauty of this particular passage, that there is someone greater than Jonah, right? That's what the scripture tells us in the New Testament. It's pointing us to Jesus Christ, and that's the second thing we see here, the consistency of God, the consistency of God. So we see the many layers of Jonah. How many of y'all expressed that, resentful? anger, self-righteousness, a forgotten uh, side of ourselves, but yet we see the consistency of God in the book of Jonah. Remember what the scripture said in the second part of verse 2? For I knew that you are gracious, a gracious God, a merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. In other words, does God truly give us what we do not deserve? Does he give us grace? Does God truly withhold what we do deserve? Does he give us mercy? Is he patient with us? Is he the God that gives us covenant love? Is he the God that is forgiving? And the book of Jonah tells us what? Yes, he is. Not just the book of Jonah, but the entire Bible says, yes, that is the God who is consistent all the way through. How do we see this? We see that God is faithful. Think about the faithfulness of God just in Jonah. I mean, if you were living during Jonah's day, how many of you would have given up on Jonah? The simple question is, how many people today have you given up on? I mean, and honestly, we probably would have given up on Jonah a long time ago. But praise be to God, he doesn't give up on us. He is faithful to us. God chooses not to give up on Jonah. And I love the questions that are asked in verse 4 and verse 9. The scripture says in verse 4, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? The second time that this comes up in verse 9, But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah says, What? Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. When you see those questions, do you see them from a lens of, uh, God just massively frustrated that he's angry and that's why he's asking these questions? Or do you see it rightly that here it's almost like a tender father bending down and saying, do, do, you, do you really think your response needs to be that of anger? God is not the angry one here. Who's the one that is angry? Jonah is the one that is angry. Where Jonah is frustrated at God's will, and God's call, and God's provision, and God's plan. God is not frustrated. God is faithful time and time again. The question is, is God faithful today? Is God faithfully loving, patient, merciful, and forgiving? The answer is yes. Why? How do we know? Because God meets us in our greatest place of weakness. Our greatest place of darkness. The scripture reminds us in Romans 5, verse 6 through 8. The scripture says, For while we were still weak, underline that word weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's who we are. For one will scarcely die for the righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God chose his love for us that while we were what? Still sinners. Christ died for us. What an amazing contrast between the life of Jonah and the life of Jesus Where Jonah fled from his enemies, God in Christ came to his enemies. Even when we were weak and powerless and guilty and sinful, Jesus chose to express his faithful love by dying on the cross for our sins. In Christ, have you experienced that type of love, that type of faithfulness from the Lord? Jesus is greater than Jonah. Praise God for that. The second thing we see about God is God is powerful. God is powerful. Look just at verses 6 through 8 again. Uh, The scripture says, Now the Lord God appointed, that's the word there, appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came, up. The next day God did what? He appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God did what? He appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Three times in this passage we see that God appointed something. That doesn't mean he created it. It was already created. But that that whatever that thing is that he created had a specific divine purpose. If it be uh, the plant or uh, the worm or the, the scorching east wind, all those things had supernatural power because of God. Right? They had a divine purpose in the hand of God, and we see this all throughout the book of Jonah. It was God who powerfully called God, uh, Jonah to arise, go and speak, right? It was God who powerfully intervened in Jonah's life by sending a violent storm and ensuring that the, the lots that were cast by those sailors landed on Jonah, right? We also see that it was God who had the power to do what? Call him the raging sea. We saw that at the end of chapter one. We also see that God appointed a great fish, kept him alive for three days and three nights. That's miraculous. He vomited him back on dry land. He gave him the undeserved second chance, he gave a powerful 5 words sermon in the Hebrew, and people came to faith in the Lord, right? So God has the power to relent from judgment, but he also has the power to judge rightly, right? This is a powerful God. The question is, is God powerful today? How do we see the great power of God? What's the proof? Look to the cross, right? It's at the cross that we recognize through the finished work of Jesus Christ that our three greatest enemies have been defeated. Sin has been defeated. Death has been defeated. Satan has been defeated. How do we know? Colossians 2, the scripture says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Because of the finished work of Christ, we have life, right? Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross, right? Right? Our sin has been dealt with. It is forgiven, past, present, future. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Because of the finished work of Christ, all of our enemies have been defeated. Praise God that there is one who is greater than Jonah, right? Where Jonah fled multiple times to get away from the will of God, Jesus faithfully, perfectly, and powerfully fulfilled God's calling in his life. Praise be to God. And lastly, we see that God is compassionate. He is compassionate. Look again at verses 10 through 11. The scripture says, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night, and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? The word pity there is the word compassion. God's compassion is so great that he has compassion over the cattle, right? And that's a reminder to us that when sin entered into the world in Genesis chapter 3, Everything, all of God's creation is is yearning and groaning for what? Redemptive history to be complete. The people, all of humanity is crying out. The rocks are crying out. The animals are crying out. And God shows his compassion to the cattle. If God is willing to show great compassion to the cattle, how much greater is he willing to show compassion to people? People that are created in the very image of his likeness. People like Jonah. People like the sailors, people like the people in Nineveh, people like you and I, right? God is a compassionate God. The book of Jonah reminds us that no matter how far someone ran or how wicked they are, God's compassion is deeper still. The question is, do we believe that God is compassionate today? We looked at Jesus, right? When Jesus is going to enter into the city, shortly before his death, we see God's compassion through Christ for the city Matthew 9, the scripture says this, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and believing uh, healing every disease and every affliction. And he did what? When he saw the crowds, Jesus sees people, right? When he saw the crowds, he has an awareness of their brokenness. He had compassion for them. He had great sympathy for them. Something that hit him deep in the gut, right? Like your, your child gets hurt and there's nothing you can do to stop it, right? That kind of compassion. Why is that? Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. The word harassed means that they were exhausted. The word helpless means that they were defeated, like sheep without a shepherd. That means they had no one to turn to. And when you look at the book of Jonah, where it talks about the 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, some scholars would say that uh, those were young kids. I think it's anybody and everybody that has no spiritual awareness of their need for Jesus, right? And that's what's happening here. And yet God, with great compassion, not only sends uh, the word to Jonah, the word to Nineveh, but he has sent the true word, Jesus Christ, to you and I today. You see, you and I were once spiritually hopeless. But God sent a messenger to us. I'll share just a quick word of testimony. Uh, Many of you all know I came to faith at 19. And the beauty of it was, for many, it was just another Wednesday night. Another Wednesday night full of setup, band rehearsal, getting the snacks together because, you know, young people got to eat. Same old thing for a lot of people. But for me, it was life changing. That night, a man got up, shared the very words that God wanted him to share, and my life changed. Amen. And over the years, I have sought to find that man. And in December of this last year, a couple months ago, it's like God just put all these pieces together. Oh, I remember his wife's name, I remember what he did. You know, it's kinda like a little freaky if it wasn't for a God thing, right? And so I found this guy in Maryland. said, so I'm gonna write him a card. I don't know if it's him or not, but I'm just gonna write him. And I didn't hear anything back until this morning at eight fifty six AM. He emailed me. And I would share that with you. Because if we do get discouraged. We do have a sense of being defeated. And I want to encourage you that this is our Nineveh, right? God has given us a powerful message. He has given us desire and power to share, to show, and to tell the message of Christ, that he is faithful, right? That he is powerful, that he's compassionate. So we must not give up. And you'll notice in the book of Jonah that it ends with a question, right? There's only one other place in scripture that it ends with a question. That's the book of Nahum. The question is why? Why end with a question? Because I think it deserves a response, right? Jonah had to respond what the question was: You and I today have to respond to that same question. What are we going to do with the calling and the message that God has given to us? You know, right after Jesus talks about his compassion for uh, those who are harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd, he says these words in Matthew 9:37 to 38. Then he, Jesus, said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. The opportunity is great, church, but Jesus says the laborers are few. Let us pray. Let us beg that God will reawaken us so that we will realize that we have the greatest message that the world has ever known. Uh, where are you at today? When you think about your own heart, is there a place of anger towards the Lord? Are you resentful toward the Lord? Is there a sense of self-righteousness in you? Is there, or have you forgotten the beauty of the amazing gospel that we have? Do you truly believe that God is faithful, that He's powerful, and He's compassionate? We're going to sing a song called "Cornerstone." Is He, is Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of your life? And so, for the church, this is an opportunity for you to confess, repent, and have a renewed trust in the gospel. So the altar will be ready for you uh, to come and just spend that time with the Lord. Certainly.